So it looks like there's plenty of questions out there. Take about seven hours to get through them. So settle in. <laughs> mm. So the first question is, curious about your thoughts about the Time Magazine article on the Mindful Revolution. Anybody see the Time Magazine? So on the, it was maybe two or three weeks ago now, um, had a picture of someone meditating uh, and the caption being Mindful Revolution and the subject being Mindful Revolution, talking about what's happening um, in how mindfulness is uh, penetrating society in different ways in, in science, neuroscience, in education, in business, uh, in emotional intelligence, in schools, in healthcare, and just the dissemination of mindfulness teachings through modalities like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and um, all the various psychological modalities like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, and um, to being taught in Congress through Tim Ryan's work, who's a congressman from Ohio, and um, what do I think about that? Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> Uh, it's very interesting, you know, when I started practicing 30 years ago, mindfulness was obscure and weird. And my family and friends thought I was obscure and weird, which of course I was back then. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I'm talking to a student uh, who lives in Minnesota, and her 14-year-old daughter uh, picks up the Time magazine and sees, oh, it's about mindfulness, and her mom's really into teaching mindfulness in a university there. And her daughter says, wow, mom, you're so cutting edge. <laughs> Which was probably the first time that she said that about her mom. So just interesting uh, ripples happening. I just came off, as I mentioned, a teacher training that I was uh, teaching the mindfulness components on for Search Inside Yourself, which is a company, Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. So they're developing leadership trainings, integrating mindfulness and emotional intelligence and science research around mindfulness and its applications in the business setting. And, uh, and that's also having wide-reaching implications. And so there are many other programs like that. And there are many points of view about it. You know, there are from the tradition, from the Buddhist tradition, that's been teaching these practices in a very mm, broad context that has this notion of a path that these teachings lead to liberation, lead to the freeing of the heart and the mind, um, there's some concern about the, the minimizing or the trivializing or the reducing the practices just to mean paying attention, um, not, or not, uh, not understanding the place of ethics and causality and service and compassion and generosity and all the other that the Buddha taught that mindfulness within the context of the Eightfold Path and had and it was it's a vehicle for for clarity for insight and for freedom and so that's not necessarily what's um, uh, how it's being sold in different places um, so I think it's a range and I think as as mindfulness takes root, dig, takes deeper root in society, it will spread 
far and wide, way beyond the bounds of any Buddhist domain. And it will be a range of things. It will be, um, there will be, you know, get enlightened quick mindfulness courses, you know, that cost $10,000 for a weekend. And there'll be stuff uh, where, you know, maybe maybe every veteran, which I think is one of the proposals, every veteran coming back from active combat will will have access to a mindfulness program that's integrated with uh, trauma work um, or the way it's being integrated into prisons with Jacques' work at Insight Prison Project and um, or integrated into homeless shelters and battered women's shelters and you know this, so there's the, there's the the mindfulness it's popular because it works and it's effective and it can transform suffering and it has an immediacy and our culture is so so scattered and ungrounded and unembodied and there's a great hunger for teachings of how to be here how to be present how to uh, work with our distress physical emotional mental distress so um I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot at teacher meetings, um, Vipassana teacher meetings, international Buddhist teacher meetings, about what's our relationship to this growing emergence of mindfulness that um, came, really came out of this tradition primarily. Um, and, uh, and it's sort of out of the bag. It's running. It's doing its thing. And we can guide it to some degree, and it will also do its thing. And there'll be some mostly, I think, wonderful things that will arise from this. And there'll be also things that are, um, we might regard as shallow or superficial or not really representing the essence or the profundity. But I also see them as stepping stones and doorways. So when I go to teach mindfulness at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, um, I see that as a doorway. It's a gate. It's a Dharma gate. It's a stepping stone. Right? So... As far as I know, the Dharma hasn't really flourished in Cincinnati yet, but it's like these little, you know, Trojan horses inside companies, you know, where people are hungry because the place where people su- report the suffering the most, where they experience the most stress, is in work, right? So why not take to the, the Dharma these practices to where people are suffering? Right? Not just work, but one of the places. So I hold a mostly optimistic outlook that the the nature of the practice helps people become more aware, more empathic, more compassionate, by nature more ethical, and uh, by nature a better human being that's suffering less. All right, so other themes. So there's a lot of questions around working with emotions, difficult emotions. And uh, a common theme that I hear a lot about now, I'll read this, actually. It's a good question. I have a difficult time on days when I feel intense self-loathing and unworthiness. I try to come back to my breath, but it doesn't always work. I know the way out is in, but do you have any suggestions to get through such states? I know everything changes. So, um, anybody relate to that? Anybody have days of self-loathing and unworthiness? Pretty common theme. And I think this part of the question about how do we get through such states and I, and I could read that in two ways as, as in how do I get through it so we can get rid of it or how do I get through it as in how do I navigate these difficult states where we feel unworthy 
or self-blame or self-hate or self-judgment. You know, I think one of the things that can arise out of mindfulness practice is a stronger critic, is a stronger self-judgment, because we start to see all the ways that we may not be so proud of. Whether it's our mind and all of its thoughts, when we start to become more mindful of our thinking, it's kind of shocking what we think. Not what we think, but what the mind produces. Or we start being aware of maybe all the ways that we're we're actually much more self-centered and selfish and uh, or maybe more contracted or aversive or fearful or anxious. You know, when we, when we keep our lives busy and distracted, whether, whatever our, our poison is to be distracted, we don't necessarily notice all this range of experience in us. And so often when we, and this, again, this is an interesting thing that's happening in, the, in, the, in, in mindfulness in society, mindfulness gets sold as this great thing. I, I, I actually meant to bring in Mindful Magazine, which is now national, national magazine, and before Christmas it had this, you know, it's like the front of the Cosmopolitan magazine. It's like, mindfulness will help you shop better for Christmas and <laughs> deal with the holidays and have better investments and a healthy retirement. And all. it's like, what? <laughs> and then when people get shocked when they come to practice, because sometimes, often what happens is not these rosy, blissful states that you've heard about, but actually a radical confrontation with our humanness and all the things that we've been running away from, our dis-ease, our anxiety, our existential angst, our uncertainty, the sense of wondering where our refuge is, right? Uh, or a lack of self-love or self-doubt. And so it's, you know, it's essential that our practice has within it uh, heartfulness, kindness, Warmth, befriending, accepting, allowing of, our, of who we are. Because not easy to be a human being, not easy to uh, deal with our conditioning. And so much of our conditioning can be negative. We inherit negative uh, self-talk, conditioning about not being enough, not being good enough, smart enough, cute enough, or whatever the messages you were, you, you got when you were growing up. So, what I found really helpful in my practice is to always reflect on the suffering nature of experience when it's painful. Because when we acknowledge the painfulness of something, it allows the heart to open. If we don't acknowledge the painfulness or the suffering, which might sound a little obvious, but it's actually not. For instance, the, 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 if we acknowledge how painful it is to feel unworthy, rather than judging ourselves for feeling unworthy or blaming ourselves or comparing ourselves to other people who are feeling worthy, we can actually open up a, a doorway to tenderness. It's like, oh yeah, this sucks to feel unworthy. It, it sucks to feel deficient. Right? Who hasn't felt deficient in their lives at some point or other, or unworthy at some point or another? Right? So, um, to, f- to befriend ourselves, and the, the loving kindness practice and the compassion practices are, are ways to bring that heartfulness forward. And really, the essence of those practices, particularly with ourselves, 
is learning to befriend ourselves, learning to be a friend or to stand by ourselves, stand beside ourselves. Right? So it's usually easier for us to feel a sense of care or warmth or friendliness to our friends and loved ones who might be feeling not good enough and unworthy and unlovable and all the other stories that we run, right? We can, it's easy for us to see, no, that's not true. You're not like that. I, I, I love you. I can appreciate it. There's all these qualities I can tell you that you are. Right? Much harder to do that with ourselves because we so buy this negative press release for whatever reason. So it also means that we have to learn how to work with the thoughts in our head. The thoughts in our head only have as much power as we give them. And if we listen to that radio station all day, I'm not good enough radio station, I see how I'm messing up my life radio station, right? which is you know, back to that quote about what am I placing my, what am I giving attention to, then that radio station just gets stronger. Those grooves get louder and deeper. And so um, we want to, look at everything that comes into our mind with a large rock of salt, with a healthy skepticism. It's not my mind, it's not my thoughts, it's just thoughts appearing, and they have just as much truth as untruth. But we give them the ultimate authority. We believe that thought, I'm I'm no good, or I'm unlovable, or I'm never going to get my shit together, or whatever your story is whatever your deficiency tape loop is, as if it's the ultimate truth. And you probably find if you asked, if you did a 360 survey of all your friends and family and colleagues about all those negative loops in your mind, most people probably wouldn't agree with them. If you wrote them down, which I often get to do in my inner critic workshops, and I say, write down the top 10 or 20 things that you think are true about yourself, you know, these negative stories, and you show them to somebody, God forbid, (laughs) most people would say, that's not true. Or maybe occasionally, or maybe a hint of that, but really it's not who you are. But we keep listening to the radio channel. So mostly, you know, Jack's retort is, um, thank you for your opinion, go have a nice day, something like that. And that's a fine thing to say. Oh, thank you, very interesting. Not interested. Go bother somebody else. So there's other questions that relate to that theme. Hmm. Turn, trying to turn instead of aversion, how to love oneself. Well, I've sort of covered that to some degree. Um, a friend of mine has a practice. She says, her original practice was she gets up in the morning before she's out of bed and she says, instead of listening to the, oh, I've got to do all these things and I should have done that and I didn't do that and God, and you know, the, by the time we get to the bathroom, we're already uh, drowning in stories. She, uh, she used to say, um, she'd sort of cut through all that and then just say, oh, good morning. Good morning. How are you? And then she added, good morning, I love you. 
good, as, as, a, as a self-meta practice, rather than, good morning, God, you're, you're still in bed, you lazy slack, and you didn't, oh, good morning, I love you. Good morning, may I be happy. Good morning, may I have an easeful day. Good morning, may I treat myself with kindness and respect. And so you start the day with an intention, and you carry that intention. So one of the things that, that shifted my work with the critic and the, those negative stories um, was there I was sitting in meditation one day quite early on in, uh, on in my practice and I instead of listening to the instead of being the critic I listened from the point of view of the heart being talked to like that so just like it was as if someone else was talking to me with that much uh, vehemence and feeling that how it landed if you, if you actually stop listening to the stories in your head and actually feel how that is to talk to yourself like that and to feel how it lands in the body and the heart, it's actually very painful to dismiss yourself, to be rude, to be harsh, to be cruel, to be judgmental, to be rejecting of your pain, which we often are, and our insecurities, or our vulnerabilities. Right? It's very painful. And so some, something in, happened in the meditation where I... I just shift the reference from being the judge to the one being judged. And, and there's something that kind of broke the, the power of the judge. Because every time it comes up now, it's like, oh, that's really painful to talk to myself like that. May I be free from that voice? May I be kind to myself? May I be loving to myself? So in the meta practice, which is the loving kindness practice, again, is a powerful practice, very simple, just like mindfulness, using in these intentional phrases. And it's easy to underestimate sometimes the power of these practices. Of course, they take a while. They're not instant practices. Um, but I've not watched over the years how, I mean, I started practice with a really strong sense of self-hatred and uh, not much self-kindness and self-respect, and see how that's really shifted, and how, as I can and bring that to myself, of course, it's e- much easier to really behold another with that, to bring that, to carry that. But easier said than done. So another question about emotions. In your experience, is the underlying tenet of Buddhism regarding emotions to cultivate positive emotions, to cultivate positive emotions, or to transcend them altogether? Well, good luck on the second one. <laughs> you know, I tried. I tried the transcendent path, and it's, it's, it's very common in in every religious path, the transcendent path, which basically is trying to sort of rise above the mess an ickiness of our human experience to some ethereal, blissful, transcendent, white light place, as if we could hang out there. Um, as if you'd want to, actually. It's sort of, I don't know. This point, this, from this perspective, it seems pretty boring to me. Um, it's nice to touch into those places of st- calm, stillness, peace, cloudy, bliss, light, and all of that. But that's not the fullness of human experience. And um, so the practice is not about transcendence. It's about coming into a wise relationship with life, with our experience, with our body, with our emotions, with our feelings, with our thoughts, with our reactions. To come into a skillful understanding 
of our emotions. There's nothing in this world that's a problem that we can't develop a wise relationship, a kind, compassionate, forgiving relationship to. So you might pay attention to what emotions you try to transcend or bypass, the spiritual bypass. I'll just get really still and really calm and blissful and I'll get rid of this thing. Yeah? I mean, I think we all do that to some degree unconsciously, right? Because we're oriented towards pleasure and towards ease. Why not? But we can't, it doesn't really work when we coast over it because it doesn't resolve it and so it stays around. When I started, one of the emotions that was most predominant, me f- predominant with me for about 10 years was sadness. There was just this sort of pervasive sadness. Whenever I dropped below the surface level of my life and chit-chat and busyness and all of that, there was just this sort of pervasive sadness that I didn't really want to be with. I didn't enjoy, didn't like that part of myself. And so always kept it at arm's length, as we do when anything's unpleasant. But of course, when we keep something at arm's length, guess what happens? It stays around at arm's length. Because <laughs> it's not actually allowed to move through and be understood and felt and experienced and, and resolved and healed. So it just stays there. So, and I kept wondering, why, is it, why, why doesn't this shift? But it only shifted when I really started to let it in. Sometimes we don't have any choice. It just comes barging in. It floods us. It overwhelms us sometimes. Sometimes that's necessary. So related to this, a few more things on emotions. If I feel irritation at someone and respond with a good wish, am I disassociating from my true feelings towards their actions? And this is something else in parentheses I can't read. I either something. I in meditation, maybe. So you know, again, this relates to the, the theme of, of being with and transcendence. So, um, the Buddha talked about many different ways of working with experience. And one of them, working with difficult experience. And one of them uh, is what he would call replacing. Replacing an unwholesome or unskillful state of mind with a skillful state of mind. So, for example feeling aversion, um, what was the emotion? Irritation, form of aversion. Um, like I could be feeling aversion in traffic. It's possible. <laughs> I could be feeling irritated with the people in front of me in line who are taking their time writing out their check at the cashier, you know, at the, the teller. Um, and if I remember that, and I remember that, that really aversion and hatred and frustration is making me suffer and doesn't make me feel in any way happier you know, or more connected to this person, I might remember that. And, and if it's not that substantive, I, I can, if I can remember the, the, this sense of kindness and well-wishing and wish the person well, or wish myself well for feeling irritation, it just dissolves. And it's not... It's not um, disassociating, it's actually conscious. So it's disassociating when we do that unconsciously, when we keep 
shoving things or transcending or bypassing. But when we do something consciously and we replace something unskillful or painful with something that's more pleasant or easeful or wise, in this case replacing metta, aversion with metta, then it's just simply understanding that two things in the mind can't coexist. If we're feeling connection and kindness and friendliness towards somebody, in that moment, um, aversion, irritation can't coexist. But usually what's helpful with all of these things, the thread that I often hear in questions is um, this difficult stuff comes up, irritation, anger, frustration, self-hatred, unworthiness, whatever the flavor is. Um, and the, the underlying subtext of often the question is, how can I get rid of it, really? Which is itself a form of aversion. Right? I have aversion to the aversion. I have judgment to the judgment. I have fear of fear. And so good to see that, good to see that, good to first acknowledge what's here, and then we acknowledge what our attitude is, what's our relationship to it. Right? If it's pleasant, we like it. If it's unpleasant, we don't. We're pretty simple. If, it's, if we don't like it, there's usually, there's usually we're pushing it away or we're recoiling from it. Two very simple tendencies, right? which actually doesn't resolve the problem. It just creates more aversion, which is actually painful. So we want to look at the experience. We want to look at our relationship to it. We want to understand it. We want to actually get close to things. And the things we don't like and don't want, we actually want to get really close to, like hatred or rage or fear or terror or all these other yummy emotions. <laughs> and we, want to, we want to get curious when you're feeling hatred. Well, what is that? What does it feel like? What triggers it? What make, brings it into being? What do I get, get for, what's the payoff for feeling that? How does it move? How does it live within me? Right? We, want, we, have to, we have to invite it in, as Rumi says, at the guest house. We have to invite these visitors in so we can get to know them. If, we, if everything's at arm's, arm's length, there's no, there's no investigation happening. And with awareness, we see how, you know, if we can abide in awareness as these strong emotions are coming and going, they just come and go, right? They can be, when we can be in intense fury and rage and, and of course, the key is not acting it out, right? Just to preface that, we're not, we're not dumping this over somebody, we're just letting ourselves feel the fullness of it. And like everything, it will come, it will pass, it will stay around for a while, we'll see what's bringing into being. And at some point it will pass. And we want to get curious what allows it to, to cease, to pass, it, to pass into cessation. Okay, so shifting from emotions a little bit. I'm aware that this is probably bringing up twice as many questions as I have here, but we'll see if there's time for that after these. How do you keep track of your time when you meditate? 
Or if you're at home, you can use Insight Timer, which is a wonderful little app. Um, and uh, has all these different bells and times, and you can put in when your friends are meditating, and you can see when they're... It's great. It's actually really sweet. You can find out when you meditate, friends are meditating, how much they meditated. And so, I've, so, I've, so I'm part of groups, and they... I mean, literally, I'm part of training groups around the world, and they track each other. Oh, so-and-so in Singapore is meditating right now. Now so-and-so in Canada is meditating. It's actually very lovely. Um, it's a virtual sangha. So, um, and then we've got the mind. Is there a Buddhist explanation why the chattering monkeys in our minds are present? I don't know where the, this metaphor of monkeys came from. I, I don't even know if it's actually from the Buddhist tradition, but we do seem to have monkeys in our minds. Um, uh, what's the Buddhist explanation? Well, I'm not sure what the Buddhist explanation is, but in Buddhist psychology, the mind is a sense organ, so it's one of the six senses. So ears hear, and eyes see, and tongues taste, and bodies feel, and minds think. It's what they do. It's the, it's the, um, the mind is a thinking phenomenon. The brain is a partly a thinking machine, a story-making machine, <coughs> incredibly sophisticated. And so that's what our minds do. And that's what they do. Like That's what they're supposed to do. That's how we function, how we survive, how we anticipate threats and plan for survival and whatnot. And so um, th- there's an assumption, again, with, with, with these questions about thoughts often, that it's a problem. That if I really had my mind sorted out, I wouldn't think very much. <laughs> or I'd come and sit in meditation and I'd be thought-free, as if that uh, exists. I mean, it can exist. You can get into very deep states of samadhi, of concentration, absorption, where the thinking mind for a period of time mostly subsides. For I mean, sometimes for substantial periods of time, but that takes usually takes a lot of concentration and practice. Um, and then when you come out of that meditation, the thinking mind comes back, which is what the Buddha realized after doing intensive concentration meditation, that... You can go into these beautiful, steep, calm, still places, and you come back out, and the personality comes back, and you're kind of much, much the same. And so there's no resolution of the deeper issues of our lives. And that's why he developed mindfulness and insight practice as a way of understanding, well, what else is going on? So... Mm, so the latest research that I've read about how much we think is somewhere between twelve and 15,000 thoughts a day. So I'm not quite sure how many that is a minute, but it's a lot. So if you wondered why your meditation is busy with thoughts, it's because that's what our brain does. It thinks. You know, and again, the practice, the point is to not end these things, but to come into a skillful relationship, to not be so unconsciously pulled about 
and lost in thoughts, stories, dramas, proliferation, papancha, this beautiful word that describes how we associate and proliferate based on various things. So you want to catch those long story trains that when we take the train to Siberia and come back and we take another one down through the Andes and come back and you want to see the trans, how the how we're fascinated by thought. And I think one of the things that I've most appreciated about meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is it helps us to see that, well, it helps me to see that my thinking mind is, um, dwelling in my thinking mind is a much uh, lower form of happiness than other ways of being. And we think we can sort of think our way to nirvana think our way to happiness. My experience, it's not actually that, doesn't create that much happiness. It's very, we need our thinking for all kinds of things, imagination and writing and creating and structuring and planning and all of that. But in terms of our well-being and happiness, it doesn't provide that much. Not our ordinary, everyday, chattering mind. Insight can, can lead to deep states of freedom. But that's, again, not from the chattery mind, not from the monkey mind. So when I started seeing that, what I noticed is I just stopped becoming less interested in my mind, less, giving it less fuel, less energy. And by doing that, it actually did get quieter, not because I was fighting it, just because, like, who cares? In 95% of the thoughts we think today, we thought yesterday, they're repeats. (laughs) They're not even good repeats. You know, they're like really stale and, you know, kind of boring for the most part. And, and mostly oriented as the brain is towards fear and threat and, and, and what's wrong. And if, if, if our mind was filled with thoughts of loving kindness and compassion, that would, that would be okay. But it's not. It's, do I have enough time? And am I going to be okay? And do they still love me? And what did I say wrong? And, Can you speak about the moment of decision to be mindful rather than indulge rather than indulge in thoughtlessness? Do you have any suggestions for improving one's ability to listen to the inner voice that prompts one to meditate, become present, and be compassionate? Interesting the word thoughtlessness. Because we We want to be thoughtless, but not thoughtlessness. Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that, really. I think through practice, you know, this analogy that's often used is the analogy of planting seeds, that we are tending the garden of our mind, we're cultivating as the Buddha said, keeping the mind in the right pasture. So as we cultivate, as we plant these seeds of intention to be present, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be aware, to let go, the more that we do that, you know, the brain as we know now is very plastic through through the understanding of neuroplasticity. What we pay attention to, 
what we do, we become. So as we plant these seeds of, of presence, of attention, of waking up, of being mindful, of caring, the more we do that, the more the brain orients in that direction. The more that we just indulge our mind and our reactivities and the patterns, guess what? That's what we become. So I've really taken this to heart of late. I was, I was listening to this wonderful talk, actually on this training this weekend, by a, um, a neuroscientist, um, a molecular biologist, and he was he was explaining how this concept of neuroplasticity of the plasticity of the brain happens at the very very microscopic le- um, uh, perspective um, of a down to the the level of neurons, and neurons are connected by axons and dendrites, and when a neuron fires, um, the 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 neuron bonds with another neuron and depending on the so and so in that way each neuron has its own neuroplasticity and so that the the flexibility of the brain to change and morph depending on what's happening which means what's preferenced what's cultivated what's practiced happens at a very molecular level so if we say practice noticing our judging thoughts and each time we notice it we release it right? that is developing its own form of habit in the in the brain right? but if we just practice being the judge of ourselves or others all the time guess what part of the brain gets really developed the judge <laughs> Start to get a bulge in the, you know, singular cortex back here. You know, just like, not really a bulge, but you know, we we grow this gray wig. You know, they have in England with this hammer. Bad. That's how I imagine my judge: big gray wig. All right, some other questions. How can your spiritual practice be enhanced or hindered by the use of cannabis? Um, not sure what to say about that. I'm in Marin, so this 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 question could be relevant for half the audience. I I think it's a personal matter. Um, Yeah, that's a hot potato, that one. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, I think, again, it's not so much the thing itself, but our relationship to it. So what is the intention when we use it? And what is the outcome? So when I work with people in my therapy practice or coaching practice or around the use of cannabis in relationship to their practice, I mostly want to be, I want them to be clear, why are they doing it? Is it to check out, which often is, truth be told, 
to numb out the stress of the day, like having a beer, to downgrade the sort of just the malaise? Um, or is it, or is it truly enhancing? Does it enhance in some way? Or is it enhancement, but there's also a loss of something else? And what's the relationship between the enhancement and the addiction? So, I, with like with everything, I'm what my concern is with working with any student is, what's the, what's the intention and what's the clarity and what's the result, and what's the short term and the long term result of, of of anything, any any substance or practice. How are we using? It? How are we relating to it? Or how are we depending on it? Does it serve our well-being? Many people use cannabis for pain relief um, and other things. So I don't have, I like a lot of things, I don't have a rigid point of view because it really is a personal thing. And I can talk about how it is from my own experience and choose not to use it. But um, we, have to all, we have to all be our own teacher and decide, well, wh- how is this, what's my relationship to this? So mostly I see people using it to check out in some way or other, and it can be spiritualized. Um, but for some people that maybe is a doorway, and I, I, can't, I can't say whether it is or it isn't. But you know, again, you know, it's interesting having all these questions, and really these, all these questions have to be answered ultimately by your own practice and your own experience, as the Buddha said. So stepping into a more bigger picture here, um, how do you personally weave your everyday practice into your understanding and actions related to what is happening in nature with regard to climate change? Ideas on how we can, how we can, how we can what, how we can weave your practice into your understanding. Does the concept of dependent origination, this, this law of causality help? So interesting, I was reading a, uh, an email um, and actually an article came through an email from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is uh, a Buddhist monk and preeminent translator of the texts. And we are part of a teacher forum on exploring ways that Buddhist teachers can respond uh, more effectively to climate change and to teach about it. And so he wrote this very detailed analysis of the ruling that came from the State Department about the Keystone Pipeline Project. And what's the Buddhist case for or against that? And uh, using actually this, the teaching of dependent origination and the uh, looking at the causes of of anything. So, and uh, looking at the pros and cons of what happens if we do have the pipeline, and what's the impact in terms of whether it's jobs or leaking into groundwater, into rivers, or the effect of burning an extra eight hundred and fifty million barrels of oil a year coming from the tar sands and the just horrendous, gross, grotesque destruction of pristine forests. Um, and it's a huge question, huge, um, you know, I think we're at this turning point in our human uh, evolution where we are um, really on the precipice of a very fast-paced ecological destruction. We're already in the destruction, but how fast it goes 
uh, is really we're on that precipice and um, we're looking at the extinction of um, you know 50% of species if not more in the next 50 years and um, it's clear that climate change is just what is the biggest example we have of the effects of how every action has a consequence and the accumulation of these actions of human industrialization and use of carbon fuels, fossil fuels, has these impacts. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think Buddhist teachings have a lot to say about this uh, issue, both personally and globally. Both personally, how do we deal with our responses to that? Do we numb out, which most of us do, frankly. Most of the world has numbed out to this problem because it's so big, it's so complex. We barely know the, an- the questions, never, know, never mind the answers. Um, and the, the scale of it and the suffering of it is so immense that, again, we numb out. Or we feel immobilized politically, economically, socially by the <coughs> magnitude. And, you know, I think we can, for me, I, I partly look at how this relates to my own personal life and my choices and my actions and how I'm contributing or not to this problem, and we all are in different ways, and what's my response to that in different ways. Um, And I think I partly, uh, and this this is a double-edged sword, the the Buddhist teachings allow me to understand that this this is the causal nature of things. You do this, this happens, do this, Burn lots of fossil fuels, you get climate change. Burn more, happens even quicker. Burn, do even more, and we get species extinction at an unprecedented rate. And um, there's something about acknowledging the truth of that actually allows a certain equanimity, which doesn't mean passivity. It just means this is how it is. We live in a lawful universe. Do this, and this happens. Act with blindness and greed and and corporate ignorance, and this happens. And we actually can make a difference, just like we made a difference with apartheid or ending slavery. Human nature has this profound capacity to wake up and learn and grow. Whether we will do so in time, quick enough, more urgently after that is a big question. I think for me, having done a lot of work with Joanna Macy, it's also helped me work with the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the loss and feeling the grief and letting myself feel the sorrow and the horror and the tragedy and the sadness and the rage and the fear and the terror and and just the sadness, the sorrow of what, you know, with this amazing point of human evolution that knows itself and knows that we know itself and we, we're studying we, we, we're starting to study the brain and most neuroscientists who are worth the salt realize we know so little. We know that different parts of the brain do this when we move and when we think and when we feel but there's no very barely any understanding of how that happens. Like how the brain interprets all this sensual, this sensory visual data and, and turns it into, oh, it's, I'm at Spirit Rock. 
with 150 people, right? I mean, there's just like a billion sense inputs, right? The brain does that. We have no idea how it does that, really, or why it does it, even. So it's, 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 for me, it's a very tragic um, timing that we're, we're revealing some of the extraordinary mysteries of the universe at the same time as destroying the very fabric in which those discoveries can be continued. So I think I'll close with this one. Um, my question revolves around the origin of Buddhism being dependent on the leaving of one's life, namely the leaving of one's family in order to attain enlightenment like the Buddha did. My understanding of Buddhism rests in the foundation that these practices are intended to support daily life, accepting what is, and yet there is this culture around Buddhism that one needs to go away over and over for a very long period of time to achieve wisdom or enlightenment. Can you comment in this dichotomy? Um, well, as someone who's gone away and gone away for long periods of time, <laughs> It's true that the, 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 the majority of Buddhist history at least has been preserved in this monastic culture, which is, has to some degree removed oneself from the, the, um, some of the functions of householder life, relationship, of a certain degree, marriage, children, sexuality, money, work. It's not really, you can't really remove yourself from life. You can remove yourself from certain things, but then you just open up to other things, like other people in the monastery you can't stand, for instance, that you're stuck with for the rest of your life, <laughs> right? You thought marriage was bad. <laughs> um, so, the, so just to, to hold that lightly, that um, it's it's removing from one set of circumstances and signing up for another. Right? We, we 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 never we we don't remove ourselves from the world. We remove ourselves from certain activities. Right? So, uh, in this culture, in the insight meditation culture, there's a high value placed on retreats, silent retreats, intensive retreats, as a way of deepening and expediting the practice. That's allows a certain intensification of our study of mind, heart, body, more than we can do in the midst of a, a, a more, in a different way than we can do in the midst of our daily working family life. Right? Both have their value, both cultivate different qualities. And the, the tradition has preferenced the deep retreat, monastic, mm, way of doing that versus living a life, having children, having a job, making money, dealing with the whole catastrophe as Sorba the, Sorba the Buddha did. What's changing is that now the predominant most, well, certainly in many countries in, in the world, Buddhism is evolving a much more of a lay 
culture where the teachers and the students are primarily not people who are going off to do become monastics, monks or nuns, or going on long retreat, but actually staying in the midst of life, work, here, family, relationship, and, and, and bringing the practice of mindfulness and awareness and kindness and compassion and to all of that, which is, um, uh, I would say, more challenging to do that, to how to wake up in the midst of your life. And it's not an either-or, because you know, I do that in the midst of my life, and I also still go on retreat, because I see the value and the, the richness that comes from actually letting go of technology and conversation and busyness and actually just dropping in so we can touch a deeper level of our being, right? It's very important. So, you know, whichever, whatever, whatever, from where I see it now, it doesn't, the form is less important than our attitude. The form is less important than what we do moment by moment. Because daily life is intensive practice. It demands a rigor of attention and kindness and patience. I mean, we develop, um, there's there's many different paths in in the Buddhist tradition. One of them is the, the, the Bodhisattva path where we cultivate our practice to relieve the suffering of others, but we also cultivate what the Buddha called paramis, perfections of generosity and patience and kindness and wisdom. Yeah. So, um, so I'd say you know, in in Western Buddhism, we're shifting away from the what this point person's pointing to, the going away model. We go away some, but we're mostly learning how to wake up here, right? Wake up at, at your job, which of course is not easy to do. Wake up on the freeway. Stay awake on the freeway, at least. It's a good thing. All right, so that's enough for now. Thank you for your great questions. I am going to read, close with... Um, hmm. It's one of my favorite um, pieces of writing by... Um, Zen teacher, I think it's, uh, I forget the name. And he writes, I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. So I read that in the invitation of, you know, in reference to many of these questions, that the practice is to embrace to accept, to allow, to meet fully with kindness and presence, all of it. 
this mystery. So thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.